Good afternoon. My name is Abigail Yi. I'm a senior from Cincinnati, Ohio, and I'm studying financial management. And I have the honor of introducing our speaker for today. Brian T. Kennedy is president of the American Strategy Group, a think tank dedicated to understanding the strategic threats to the United States. A graduate of Claremont McKenna College and a member of the Independent Working Group on Missile Defense, Mr. Kennedy is chairman of the Committee for the Present Danger, China. He is a board member and senior fellow of the Claremont Institute, where he served as president from 2002 to 2015 and directed its Golden State Center in Sacramento, its national security project, and served as publisher of the Claremont Review of Books. He has written widely on national security affairs and public policy, including in The Wall Street Journal, The Federalist, The American Mind, and Primus, Investors Business Daily, and Real Clear Politics. He is the author of Communist China's War Inside America and co-author of The CCP is at War with America, a Team B report on the COVID-19 biological warfare attack. Please join me in welcoming Mr. Brian T. Kennedy. Thank you very much. Thank you. Much of what I have to say today will be the product of four years of work by the committee to try to understand the machinations of communist China and our own government, which has seemingly become very malleable and subject to manipulation by the CCP. I would humbly argue that for the last three years, the United States, with everything the United States has experienced, has been an exercise in information, political, and psychological warfare aimed at the American people, both from abroad and from forces here at home. This includes a bio-warfare attack against the United States, although it was treated even today as something else. And that really is the purpose of my talk, to see if we can understand that. Specifically, I'd like to discuss the Chinese Communist Party and its interplay with Big Pharma. Now, now I'd like to do three things this afternoon. First, I'd like to describe the strategic objectives of the Chinese Communist Party. Second, I'd like to discuss Big Pharma and how it has failed the American people. And finally, I'd like to discuss how I think both of these entities are working to destroy the United States and the free world. First, the CCP. It has a single goal, the control of the earth and all the peoples of it. Three things should inform how we deal with and think about the Chinese Communist Party. And here we are trying to understand the Chinese Communist Party as they understand themselves. The first is that they have declared a people's war against the United States, a people's war. They declared this in May of 2019 against the United States. This was published in the People's Daily, which is a media arm of the CCP. It was a signal to the people of China that an unconventional war would be waged against the United States and that they should prepare themselves for war. So it was first a message to the Chinese people themselves. The reason for this people's war was that the United States had the temerity to try to enforce some kind of ban, some kind of mechanism to stop communist China, the People's Liberation Army, the industrial espionage units within it, and private cyber thieves within communist China from stealing about 500
billion dollars a year in intellectual property from the United States. That's $5 trillion over a decade, the Trump administration had said. So because we had the temerity to ask them to quit stealing $5 trillion of our intellectual property, they declared a people's war on us. That's how they think of us, that whatever we have belongs to them. And I'd also say that people's war was not just about money. It was also about political control. They believed they had control of the United States before Donald Trump and the MAGA movement. They had captured the elites in the West. They thought they had bought them off. Major media figures like Rupert Murdoch were sympathetic to them. The masters of the universe on Wall Street like Larry Fink at BlackRock or Stephen Schwartzman at Blackstone were all making billions of dollars doing business in communist China. They, they the CCP, believed they had complete control of the oligarchs in the United States. That much was clear. The MAGA movement and Donald Trump, however, represented something different. It represented a genuine resurgence of American nationalism. It represented an awakening for the American people. The communist movement that has operated in this country for the better part of a century was having a lot of success prior to Donald Trump. If the primary goal of communism or a communist revolution is to first demoralize the American people, which is an absolute requirement for a communist revolution, demoralization, Donald Trump represented a remoralization of the American people that from the Chinese communist point of view could not be tolerated. The United States is the most powerful nation of the Judeo-Christian West. With Donald Trump as president, the principles of human freedom and the great traditions of the Christian West were being reborn. For that reason, the Chinese Communist Party must have believed that it must be destroyed, or at minimum, Donald Trump needed to be destroyed politically. Within six months of their declaration of a people's war, the COVID-19 virus was spreading throughout the world. And it matters little whether it was intentionally leaked from a lab or not. What is clear is that they allowed it to spread throughout the world, knowing the harm it would cause. And just as a practical matter, even if it were an intentional attack, in war, deception matters. And even an intentional attack would require that it look like an accident, as I'll, I'll discuss a little later. But it was always going to be presented as the possibility of a lab leak. Now, again, regardless, COVID-19 was used as a bioweapon against the United States, which leads me to the second point in this section when you're trying to understand communist China, you really need to understand their belief in unrestricted warfare. There was a famous book by two colonels in 1999. They were colonels, of course, of the People's Liberation Army, and they wrote a book called Unrestricted Warfare. And it's been a popular document that I and my colleagues on the Committee on the Danger point to, because it's one of the ways to understand China and how they think about policy and statecraft. In the book, the two colonels believe that war between China and the United States is inevitable. And the PRC, they believe, must be prepared. 
if they are to win, to engage in whatever means are necessary to achieve this. And they say, the variable means to achieve this victory include the use of economic warfare, cyber warfare, information warfare, political warfare, they use this phrase, terrorism, bio-warfare, and the like. They write that, they tell the world this in 1999. Wars, as we know, are fought on battlefields, on the seas, but yes, today they are also fought online, in the media, in boardrooms, in classrooms, and in laboratories. Their purpose in writing this document, which was very well known in China and outside of China, was to lay down a marker with US policymakers that nothing was going to be out of bounds when it comes to how the PRC viewed the United States. They wanted to make sure the PRC was capable of waging war and that they were committing, committed doing so whenever and wherever it took. So for all the commerce we in the United States may engage in with the PRC, we ought to have no illusions that they see themselves as our enemy and an enemy that they are allowed to do anything they want to because after all, from their point of view, they're in a war with us. This leads me to the third part of my section on Chinese, the Chinese Communist Party, and that's work that's been extensively done by my colleague on the Committee on the Present Danger, J.R. Nyquist. And he's really done extensive work in promoting a secret speech that was given in 2003. And it deals with what the Chinese Communists think of as the problem of America. And it was articulated in this speech by the Chinese Defense Minister General Shi Ho Xin. He gave it to members of the Politburo, and I'm gonna focus a bit on it today because I think it is one of the most underappreciated documents that our intelligence community has and does not highlight. And I think you'll see where I'm going with this um, as I lay this out. He's talking to the people within the Politburo who are going to be planning out the future of Chinese strategy. And he's taking a long-term view the way the Chinese typically do. As he's laying out the problems for them to deal with, he is referencing Nazi Germany first in World War II, of course. He says about Nazi Germany, the following are the fundamental causes of their defeat, the Nazis. First, they had too many enemies all at once, as they did not adhere to the principles of eliminating enemies one at a time. Second, they were too impetuous, lacking the patience and perseverance required for great accomplishments. Third, when the time came for them to be ruthless, they turned out to be too soft, therefore leaving troubles that resurfaced later on. So just for perspective, Shi Ho Shin believes the Nazis were inherently, as he says, too soft to win the Second World War. So he lays out what ought to have been their strategy. He says, let's presume that back when Germany and Japan had been able to keep the United States neutral and had fought a protracted war step by step on the Soviet front, if they'd adopted this approach, gained some time to advance their research, eventually succeeded in obtaining the technology of nuclear weapons and missiles, and launched surprise attacks against the United States and the Soviet Union using them, 
then the United States and the Soviet Union would not have been able to defend themselves and would have had to surrender. Little Japan, he says, in particular, made an egregious mistake in launching the sneak attack on Pearl Harbor. This attack not hit the vital parts of the United States. Instead, it dragged the United States into the war, into the ranks of the grave diggers that eventually buried the German and Japanese fascists. Pretty interesting, the way he thinks of that. He goes on to say, ostensibly in comparison, today's China is alarmingly similar to Germany back then. Both of them regard themselves as the most superior races. Both of them have a history of being exploited by foreign powers and are therefore vindictive. Both of them have the tradition of worshiping their own authorities. Both of them feel that they have insufficient living space. Both of them raise high the two banners of nationalism and socialism and label themselves as national socialism. Both of them worship one state, one party, one leader, and one doctrine. He's comparing himself in this to the Nazis. So bear with me here because he really is trying to make an argument to the Politburo about how they need to think about their strategic future. He goes first is the issue of living space. This is the biggest focus on the revitalization of the Chinese race. He basically then starts complaining that they don't have enough land in which to live. China, big country, but with a big population. He starts complaining about how they've polluted communist China. This is 2003. They've polluted communist China to the point where it's unlivable. He says, anybody who has been to Western countries know that their living space is much better than ours. They have forests along the highways while we hardly have any trees by our streets. Their sky is often blue with white clouds while our sky is covered by a layer of dark haze. Their tap water is clean enough for drinking while even our groundwater is so polluted that it can't be drunk without filtering. They have few people in the streets and two or three people can occupy a small residential building. In contrast, our streets are always crawling with people and several people have to share one room. So he's establishing in this story their resentment of the West that they should have these resentments against the West. He goes on, from the perspective of history, the reason that China is faced with the issue of living space is because Western countries established colonies ahead of, ahead of Eastern countries. Western countries established colonies all around the world, therefore giving themselves an advantage on the issue of living space. To solve this problem, we must lead the Chinese people outside of China so that they could develop outside of China. Now, this is a really important point, for it does to be the, the uh, beginning of a change in Chinese strategy, at least when it comes to their public presentation. Now, it's often said the Chinese are not an expansionary people, that they're an inward-looking people. They've been around for 5,000 years, and they've not expanded beyond where they currently are. That's the narrative we're told of communist China. But General Xi makes this point. He says, there's no need to worry about this issue. Comrade Mao Zedong said that if we could lead the Chinese people outside of China, resolving the lack of living space in China, the Chinese people will support us. 
at that time, we don't have to worry about the labels of totalitarianism or dictatorship. So already in China, they were feeling criticisms of totalitarianism and dictatorship within China. And so he says, as a practical matter, whether we can forever represent the Chinese people depends on whether we can succeed in leading the Chinese people out of China. After some deep pondering, we finally come to this conclusion. Only by turning our developed national strength into the force of a first striking outward, only by leading people to go out can we win forever the Chinese people's support and love for the Communist Party. Our party will then stand on invincible ground and the Chinese people will have to depend on the Chinese Communist Party. They will forever follow the Communist Party with their hearts and minds as was written in a couplet frequently seen in the countryside some years ago, listen to Chairman Mao follow the Communist Party. So for him, expansion outside of China is critical. That is the thing that matters. He says, what is the third issue we should clinch firmly in order to accomplish our historical mission of national renaissance? It is to hold firmly onto the big issue of America. The renaissance of China is in fundamental conflict with Western strategic interest, and therefore will inevitably be obstructed by the Western countries doing everything they can. So only by breaking the blockade formed by the Western countries headed by the United States can China grow and move forward. And so it is clear that he says our future strategy is against the United States. We need living space. They have it. So he says, therefore, solving the issue of America is key to solving all other issues. First, this makes it possible for us to have many people migrate there and even establish another China, another China, he says, under the same leadership of the CCP. He says, America was originally discovered by the ancestors of the yellow race. He says, we, the descendants of the Chinese nation, are entitled to the possession of this land. It is said that the residents of the yellow race have a very low social status in the United States. We need to liberate them. Second, after solving the issue of America, the Western countries of Europe would bow to us, not to mention Taiwan, Japan, and other small countries. Therefore, he says, solving the issue of America is the mission assigned to the CCP members by history. Now, there is something very powerful in that formulation. The idea that he thinks that America is theirs and that there are people here, Chinese people here that need to be liberated should be of great concern to all of us. Now he says, I'm, this is almost the end. Only by using special means to clean up America will we be able to lead the Chinese people there. This is the only choice left for us. This is not a matter of whether we are, we, whether we are willing to do it or not. What kind of special means is there for, available for us to clean up America? He says conventional weapons such as fighters, cannons, missiles, and battleships won't do. Neither will highly destructive weapons such as nuclear weapons. We are not as foolish as to want to perish together with America by using nuclear weapons. 
despite the fact that we have been exclaiming that we will have the Taiwan issue resolved at whatever cost. Only by using non-destructive weapons that kill many people will we be able to reserve America for ourselves. There has been rapid development of modern biological technology and new bioweapons have been invented one after another. Of course, we have not been idle. In the past years, we have seized the opportunity to master weapons of this kind. We are capable of achieving our purpose of cleaning up America all of a sudden. When Comrade Xiaoping was still with us, the Party Central Committee had the perspicacity to make the right decision not to develop aircraft carrier groups and focus instead on developing lethal weapons that can eliminate mass population of the enemy country. So the point is, he's going to use biological weapons against us. He says, biological weapons are unprecedented in their ruthlessness. But if the Americans do not die, then the Chinese have to die. If the Chinese people are strapped to the present land, meaning if they're stuck in China, a total societal collapse is bound to take place. According to the computation of the author of Yellow Peril, more than half of the Chinese will die. He lays, he lays out how many of them are going to die. He thinks, you know, 800 million are going to die. So he says, we must prepare ourselves for two scenarios. If our biological weapons succeed in the surprise attack, the Chinese people will be able to keep their losses at minimum in the fight against the United States. If, however, the attack fails and triggers a nuclear reaction from the United States, China would perhaps suffer a catastrophe in which more than half of its population would perish. This is why we need to be ready with air defense systems for our big and medium-sized cities. Whatever the case may be, we can only move forward fearlessly for the sake of our party and state and our nation's future, regardless of the hardships we have to face and the sacrifices we have to make. It is indeed brutal to kill one or 200 million Americans, he says. But that is the only path that will secure a Chinese century in which the CCP leads the world. We as revolutionary humanitarians do not want death. But if history confronts us with a choice between the deaths of Chinese and those of Americans, we have to pick the latter. As for us, it is more important to safeguard the lives of the Chinese people and the life of our party. That is because, after all, we are Chinese and members of the CCP. Since the day we joined the CCP, the party, life, has always been above all else. History will prove that we made the right choice. Now, that is a powerful, powerful formulation of how they think of themselves. And the idea that they describe using biological weapons against us has a way of, in my mind, it gives some logic to everything we've been living under for the past three years, that whereas we, the United States, and Robert Kennedy did a great job of, of laying all the concerns we had about biological weapons. Whereas he laid out why we wouldn't want to use them, even if the CIA had them, the Chinese have, they have no illusions about any of this. They think, why would, if we really want that place, America, with its, you know, 
the fertile lands that we have, the beauty of it, but just the economic capacity of it, why would we want to destroy it with nuclear weapons? Why not just kill the people? And the way you kill the people is with biological weapons. But here's something that he says, you know, as he concludes his speech that I found the most interesting, if you can believe it. He talks about, in 1995, a meeting of the Gorbachev Foundation in San Francisco, 1995. And he says, this is a shocking US conspiracy. So this is a meeting of like the World Economic Forum types, but back in 95, it's Gorbachev's foundation. He says there are 500 uh, business leaders there, important statesmen, economic leaders, scientists, George W. Bush, who said who was not the president, Baroness Thatcher was there, Tony Blair was there, Zbigniew Brzezinski, George Soros, Bill Gates. They were all there, he says, and this is true, I, I, I did investigate this, from September 27th to October 1st in 1995. And they're talking about the world's population, among, among other things. It's a very sort of future-looking meeting of all these world leaders, not unlike what the World Economic Forum and George, and George Soros and, and um, Klaus Schwab do today. But back then, in 1995, they, t they, they basically come to a conclusion at this conference that the planet, the economic productivity of the planet could be done by about 20% of the population. So that four-fifths of the planet, 80%, would, and, and this is, these, are, these are General Xi's words now, he says the people in attendance thought that this excess 80% population would be a trash population and a, quote, high-tech means should be used to eliminate them gradually. Now, this kind of a conversation was actually had in 1995 in San Francisco by these types. Now, I'm not saying George Bush believed any of this or, or you know, Baroness Thatcher or anybody else. But when you get these globalists together, I'm not saying those are globalists, but when you get people who are looking in this global way together, there are always going to be some who believe that the world's overpopulated and that we have to do something about it. So from the point of General Xi, he's saying, we polluted China to the point where it's unlivable. They need living room, not unlike the Germans, Lebensraum that it's going to take pressure off them politically with the Chinese people if the Chinese people can go outside their borders, that they're eventually going to have to fight the Americans anyway, that America is essentially the only country standing in their way. And so they're going to use biological weapons to take America down. And he's saying these globalist powers in that meeting in San Francisco eight years previous were conspiring back then to eradicate the world's population anyway. And so the CCP ought to act first. Now, this is not an unknown speech among the American intelligence community. It's not subscribed to because if you subscribe to this, what I just said, you have to do something about communist China. You have to take that seriously. And so much easier not to take it seriously. 
Um, just as, as a closing note on General Xi, this guy was not a marginal character. He was responsible for organizing the, the um, how to deal with Tiananmen Square in 1989. He organized that, which was one of the most sophisticated exercises in political suppression in the history of mankind. He would be sent to Washington after that. He was promoted after Tiananmen Square. He would go to Washington all the time and give military talks, military to military talks. So our military knows him well. They know he's a serious guy. And I spent time on this, a lot of time on this, because if we're gonna win the war we're in with them, we need to understand that this is how they're thinking about us. They're thinking about not merely hurting us, but potentially killing all of us and taking North America. And they think about, about it not in terms of sort of some like native hatred of the United States, but they're saying essentially we've destroyed China, we need to go somewhere else. If we're gonna have to fight a war with the Americans anyway because they're the only thing standing between us and, and global domination, we might as well start now. And one could argue they've spent 20 years preparing for that. Within that context, in my time remaining, I'd like to focus on Big Pharma and its relation to that. Because if you're China, would you have an interest, if you're about to engage in biological warfare, would you want to co-opt Big Pharma? One would, one would have to think that wouldn't be a crazy idea. In this country, we've promoted Big Pharma in a variety of ways because any nation like ours should have an advanced industry where we can investigate the best medicines. We today, as has been discussed during this conference, we in America have invested billions of dollars in universities, um, laboratories. We put money into all sorts of research to develop new pharmaceuticals to deal with all sorts of diseases. And we should have been focusing as well on the supply chain. Now, the government agencies, it appears, were co-opted by Big Pharma. In a properly functioning republic, it wouldn't be crazy to put public monies to encourage Big Pharma to invest in certain things. But as to be expected, you know, we screwed that up as a nation. We put money into Big Pharma and Big Pharma did what it wanted to do, not what was good necessarily for the American people. For the last half century, we have substituted, in my judgment, common sense for pills. Now, without the communists raising a finger, we're becoming ever obese as a society. Instead of encouraging people to lose weight and exercise, we give them pills to lower their cholesterol and blood pressure. Not crazy if they have high cholesterol and high blood pressure, it is thought. But because the body doesn't react well to that pharmacology, an array of other problems occur within human beings. And so Big Pharma has been in the business to make money by dealing with all the problems that either one set of drugs cause or that vaccine causes. And I think Bobby Kennedy, Robert Kennedy Jr. had, a, had an excellent treatment of all that. 
And you can see Big Pharma has gotten so rich that, you know, you watch any sports or TV show and you, you, you know, it's sponsored by commercials or by, you know, Pfizer, Moderna, Novartis. You know, I, I especially like the ones where, you know, they're talking about, you know, fixing, you have a pain, pain in your lower back and they can give you something and they start listing off all the side effects that include, you know, a variety of things, including, and my favorite always is suicidal tendencies, <laughs> right? You know, your lower back's going to feel great, but you may have these suicidal tendencies. Um, but you almost think these are such obscure drugs. What is the point of advertising for them? And then you realize maybe they're not really advertising to fix the problem, but to control the networks because they're advertising things that they can't be making that much money on. But if they control the networks by subsidizing all these TV shows, I mean, everything is, you know, brought to you by Pfizer, then that has a corrupting influence. So big pharma, using our tax dollars, have created drugs that have made them a lot of money that have not made us healthier. I think one of the speakers earlier in the week highlighted some of this. And it's a national tragedy that we haven't woken up to, to this before now. Now, if that wasn't bad enough, though, um, one of the members of our committee on the present danger, China, is Rosemary Gibson. She's one of the founding members. And she wrote a book called China Rx. So not only have we done all this with Big Pharma, we've exported much of the production of this now to communist China so that they can make all the money. The upshot of her scholarship was that in ever greater pursuit of profits, America's pharmaceutical industry has exported both the manufacture of pharmaceuticals and the active pharmaceutical ingredients from which the drugs are made. And a substantial amount of the research now, Pfizer makes deals with, you know, not merely Fosun Pharma, but, but other laboratories in communist China to do all the research on this. So it was not just that we would find a place to make the drugs at a lower cost, but we would take a thriving industry, a real industry in America, to try to research you know, chronic illness and disease and things that are really bothering us and, and things that we might be able to deal with. And we, we take those billions of dollars worth of jobs in America and we, and we export that to communist China. We offshore that as well. So I'm not even saying we should be taking these drugs, but if we are going to make these drugs, we should at least make them in the United States. And the crazier part to all this, I don't want to run out of time here, the crazier part of all this is that um, the Chinese want to be the world's pharmacy, they say. Their strategy is to be openly the world's pharmacy. So they not only want to produce the drugs, they want to produce the active pharmaceutical ingredients. They want, they want the money for the research to investigate all these things. So when Tony Fauci, Anthony Fauci goes and has the Wuhan Institute of Virology through Echo Health Alliance, you know, do what appears to be gain of function research. This is just how the, how the world works here. Just how the world works. We're just gonna let China do all this for us. Apparently, these are jobs Americans just won't do, which is research and, and manufacturing, all of which is crazy.
if there's a piece of good news of highlighting all this, the Trump administration did take this seriously. In um, 28, before 2018, there was literally no one in the US government responsible for knowing where our pharmaceuticals were being manufactured. They knew they were being manufactured all throughout the world. They just, no one, it was no one's job to really track that as if they were kind of indifferent to the fact that now 80% of the active pharmaceutical ingredients are made in communist China. And in 2019, the Trump administration took, that, took these facts very seriously uh, to where now both the DOD and the FDA have to report to Congress on the status of certain medicines here. We still have not brought back on shore to the United States the production of these active pharmaceutical ingredients. It turns out once you close down these factories, it's very hard to open them back up. Um, but it is, it is my sincere hope, should be all of our sincere hope, that um, we do that quickly. Because as one Chinese official said, uh, after, after in 2020, there was a lot of criticism of the Wuhan Institute of Virology and the idea that it was an intentional attack. One of the Chinese members of the Politburo said that, that they were gonna start denying us, made a threat, started, he was gonna start denying us, they were gonna start denying us uh, the active pharmaceutical ingredients. And he said, quote, we would be drowned in a sea of coronavirus. So let me just say, you know, wrapping up here, um, the issue of the vaccines is something we really need to get to the bottom of in this new Congress. I think what President Trump was promised from Pfizer and Moderna was not what we actually got. I don't think there was, I don't think there was, I don't think there was any time when someone said to President Trump, and I think Peter Navarro affirms this in some of the things he's written, we're gonna give you an mRNA you know, gene therapy. He was promised an honest to God vaccine of the kind that we took when we were kids for a variety of things. And so this was a new thing. He was promised something that was a traditional vaccine that was going to save America's lives. Now, I do think he had, he had a faith in modern science that we now know was unwarranted that I'm not sure he fully appreciated just how corrupt our government agencies led by Tony Fauci in part were in dealing with all this. Um, and and that, that seems to me um, a great political tragedy that we need to uh, consider. And I think, I think before Congress, Albert Borla from the CEO of Pfizer, who I should note is a veterinarian, um, not a, nothing against veterinarians, but he's a veterinarian. Um, and Stefan Bunsell of Moderna, they should be asked how these mRNA gene therapies got to be our vaccines. Because as a practical matter, that just simply didn't make any sense. So let me conclude. I think what we're seeing here is a matter of high government policy by communist China and what I would term the demonic forces of globalism with, that are within the organizations like the World Economic Forum, I think we're seeing with all of these an effort to depopulate the planet. 
The World Economic Forum and writers like Paul Ehrlich have raised a specter that we're overpopulated, that there's some eight billion people, and that we should really only have 500 million or a billion. If you look at that number from that 1995 conference, that number's roughly a billion, right? There's a group of people on this planet, whether they're communist China who would like America or the World Economic Forum or radical environmentalists who think we're overpopulated and now they're going to, do, they're going to take it upon themselves to remake this world. And so from a big pharma point of view, if you want drugs that'll lower your cholesterol, we can produce those. If you want drugs that will lower the population, we can do that too, right? We'll put this or that into this vaccine. We'll put this or that into this drug. It's not about money, it's about power. Big Pharma is gonna follow whatever government on this earth is willing to give them the power to do what they do. And I, I perhaps I'm a little over the top by calling this demonic, but I think there's a demonic force here because there's no other way to explain. There's no other way to explain. You know, either Big Pharma is grossly incompetent or they're malicious and evil. They, and and it, it, certainly is, it certainly is that. And I, let me say, um, Xi Jinping said the virus is a demon and we cannot let this demon hide. Indeed, he wanted it to go all over the world. Now, whether he's carrying out the strategic design of Xi Xin or not is another matter. But suffice it to say that the Chinese Communist Party has carried out a bioweapon attack against the United States with near impunity. The communist Chinese point of view, I understand. They're a great nation with strategic interests. They care about the well-being, first and foremost, of the Chinese Communist Party. They have 90 million members. They don't care about the Chinese people. They care about those 90 million. There's only one nation that stands between us and global domination. We in this room who care about human freedom must rally our countrymen to understand the threats before us. We must remoralize our people and be children of light in the darkness that surrounds us. The cause of freedom has never been more in danger. Let us commit ourselves like never before to its defense. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Kennedy. We now have time for some Q&A. If you have a question, please make your way to the microphone and student questions will be given preference. Uh, as I am aware, China's modern geopolitical moves on a global stage include opening ports and trading posts in areas of Southeast Asia akin to European trade companies, uh, ports that they had owned during the century of humiliation for the Chinese. So with this happening with China taking trade ports in Southeast Asia and many major trading areas, what should the U.S.'s geopolitical maneuvering be in regards to uh, uh, trade and tariff policy with countries such as Singapore or Indonesia? Uh, it's a good question. I mean, the, the, the thing is, China, 
we're a commercial republic. We want to trade with the world. Um, free trade has done a lot of good for us. It did more good for us when we were also manufacturing things and selling things around the world. When you combine free trade with restrictive uh, manufacturing and environmental and regulatory policy in this country, it's very hard for us to engage in the kind of free trade that made us so prosperous, even though we are a very prosperous country. The Chinese have seen that we're taking a step back in the world. So through their Belt and Road Initiative, they've been expanding everywhere, making all sorts of trade deals, buying up all sorts of raw materials in all the countries. In any country that will make a deal with them, they'll, 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 uh, they'll do business with. And that Belt and Road Initiative has a real way of co-opting all these small countries. Because the Chinese have perfected corruption. They know how to pay off the elites in any given country. They get a trade deal. They get a deal to buy a port, a railway, to, to build these kind of things. The leader of the country, the handful of people who run the country, get paid a boatload of money. The Chinese get the contract. The Chinese become rich. The leaders of the country become rich. And the people within those countries become exploited. And their, and their, their raw materials taken from them. And the Chinese have perfected that, and they're very effective. And we, the United States, who are concerned about being a commercial republic, need to take that seriously and challenge the Chinese uh, wherever we can, because most of the time they're using um, methods that are illegal from our own standards to achieve these deals. Yes. So, Mr. Kennedy, of our multi-million, multi-trillion dollar national debt, um, I know a good portion of that is owed to China. Is China exploiting this? Like, do they, don't they care that we owe a lot of money to them? Just what are they doing about that? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, the answer is no. I mean, right now we have a $31 trillion national debt going up every minute. And the Chinese today have 800 billion of that. So, you know, if it were, if it were 8 billion, Eight trillion, and it was they owned a trillion. That that'd be one thing. They own eight hundred billion of thirty-one trillion. The bigger crisis in America is the fact that Americans today invest four to seven trillion. This is a crazy number. Four to seven trillion in Chinese equities. So people in this room, you've heard this from my colleague Roger Robinson, as part of the work on the committee on the present danger. In in your investment portfolios. Most of the time, unbeknownst to you, you will invest your own hard-earned dollars in index funds that are invested in communist China to the tune today of four to seven trillion dollars, which is which should be just a crime. So the idea that they own us because they own 800 billion of our treasury debt was something that they have promoted pretty effectively. And I will say, just as a practical note, on a practical note, we, the United States, have owned, citizens of the United States own the defaulted sovereign debt of the PRC that they've never paid on that is in excess of a trillion dollars. So most of this is really a real head-scratcher. We're, we're not doing anything to hold China to account on anything. They steal our intellectual property. They you know, exploit our, our markets in a variety of ways. They get our Wall Street titans to invest in them, and you know no one's watching what they're doing. That's how 
unfortunately corrupt country we are. Yes. Hi, thank you very much. I don't know if this is fake news, but I have read in many places that the, member, the number of members of the Communist Party in China is dropping significantly. And also in, the, also in the 1990s, David Aikman wrote a book called Jesus in Beijing, where I learned in that book that there are actually more Christians in China than the rest of the world combined. So I'm wondering what, I don't know if, what my question is, but maybe to no, comment no, 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 on no. that, like what yeah. is the role of faith and in the conversion of the Chinese people uh, given this scenario? Yeah, I would love for it to be true that, that um that that were so, I don't, I don't see any evidence that the Chinese Communist Party is declining in numbers. And it, it seems to be getting ever more powerful. It has 90 million members. The Chinese students that you see in the United States, you know, from mainland China, there's about 300,000, it used to be more before COVID. These are the children of the Chinese elite. They're the future masters. They're part of the effort to steal that $500 billion a year. They're making plenty of money they're growing in number. Does China have a population problem? Yes, they do, but not among, not among that wealthy elite. Christianity in China is still being suppressed. The Chinese Communist Party, they actually believe in communism. They believe that atheism is their strength, their strength. Atheism and unity are the two phrases that they often use. And so they've, just, they, they've managed to suppress Christianity is, you know, there. And they've also managed to corrupt the Catholic Church, which has, you know, all sorts of outlets there. And the, the Catholic Church even has not been able to, to navigate their way around that. Yes, sir. All I can say is, wow. I'm trying to find a, a bit of optimism here. I have personally no hope that the our federal or our national government is capable of dealing with China under its current construct, that, in my opinion. Right. However, your colleague, Steve Bannon, often talks about, I'm from Brooklyn, so my Asian accent probably isn't very good, Lao Bai Zhang. He, he claims that uh, in 1984 or whatever it was with Tiananmen Square, if the United States had supported the Lao Bai Zhang, that China would be done back then. Is there a chance that the Chinese people have not voted yet and there's a chance that they could be a strategic benefit to the world? I think that's a fabulous question. Um, Steve is an optimist, I, I, will, I will say. The Dark Lord is an optimist. I'd like to think that Chinese people would rise up. Um, there's plenty of reason for them too. You saw a lot of evidence of the potential for them to rise up in some of these lockdowns. I think the, there's, they, had, they followed this zero COVID policy. I thought that was mostly theater. I thought that it was mostly designed to see how the Chinese people would respond to lockdowns because they might actually have to engage in lockdowns in China in the event that they uh, invaded Taiwan. There was another... Uh, recording of a private meeting in China last year among a Communist Party cell in the southern part of China. And they were talking about the potential, if they did invade Taiwan, of major riots in the major cities. 
and the need to engage in what sounded like, you know, 18 months, 24 months of preparation internally to deal with the police, have their own police deal with the internal population in the event of an invasion of Taiwan, which would suggest that Steve may be onto something there, that the Chinese people will not sit idly by under every circumstance. But we also know that the communist government there is not afraid to kill their own people. And they make a big point often. They've killed, you know, in the last hundred years, they've killed over a hundred million people. So they're not afraid to kill their own people. And I think, because I didn't, the, the, the General Xi speech was, was long enough as it was, but he says at one point that what about all the people, uh, all the Chinese within the United States that we're going to have to kill as well? And he basically says, and yeah, we've done it before, we'll do it, essentially we've done it before, we'll do it again. There, you know, if we want to save all these other people in communist China, we're going to have to kill the Chinese that are in America too. So he, do, he doesn't, they don't really seem to care about that. It's those 90 million members of the Chinese Communist Party. Now, this is true of everything that we're dealing with. It's the, it's the a fraction of 1% of this global elite that are trying to tyrannize us. There's more of us than there are of them. We sit idly by, they win. We can't let that be the case, whether it's here or in communist China. I'm not sure what we can do to help liberate the communist Chinese or the, the Chinese people from the party. And we pray that they, they do it themselves for the sake of the whole world. But, but my main message is that we in America have to wake up. We have to liberate this country. We're an occupied country right now. We're not living in a republic. We now have time for one more question. In 1989, I found myself in Beijing, China, opening the first chiropractic clinic there. And I was there during the Tiananmen Square incident. I love chiropractors. <laughs> and um, we would go down to the square before the whole lockdown happened to hang out with the students. And I would walk around and I'd have a Chinese translator with me. And if I stopped moving, they would close in and they would just start firing questions in Chinese to the translator. And you know what those questions were? How do you do your democracy? How do you elect a president? They wanted me to go back to civics class and like, like spell it out for them. So when I hear your comments and I think about those exact human beings that I encountered and their just thirst for freedom and democracy and what I saw happen just days later where we're in the square, everything's peaceful, everything was completely peaceful. The crime rate was way down. The car accidents were way down because they were just bicycles. <laughs> and the five abreast soldiers come marching down the alleyway and turn into Tiananmen Square and they had no guns. They were unarmed and the people were so angry and they just tore at them. And then they could say, oh, look at the hooligans in Tiananmen Square. So I guess my question is, if we think of the individual human beings and if they could have gotten out and gotten to America, you know, they would have embraced this. They don't want that. No, so. I, believe, I believe it's a great question, great question to close on. I don't think they want that. But here's what, that, here's what I think may have happened in Tiananmen Square. That the Chinese saw 
that there was a spirit of democracy and freedom within their own people. And they might have organized Tiananmen Square so that those people you talk to, that they rose up. That the communists are very sophisticated politically when they engage in political war. They do it in such a way as to expose, for instance, if I'm right about this speculation, about Tiananmen Square, because it was General Shi Shen who organized this. The same person who's talking about the biological warfare, he organized essentially Tiananmen Square. And it was very possible the way he organized it was to have people incite those good people within China who believed in democracy and have them rise up so that then they could then be crushed. That's how they think. They don't think like us. Whatever way we think politically and engaging in politics and rhetoric and discourse, they don't think that way. They are absolutely ruthless. They mean to be masters of the earth. If something is going to stand in their way, they crush it. And yes, the Chinese people can stand up. And I think the best thing for the Chinese people today is if the American people stand up. If we get a free country here, China can be free. If we don't, they don't. Thank you.